Good morning, Missio. How's everybody doing today? Good? Sounds good. I love the buzz in the room. Hopefully there's a buzz online too. Uh, yeah, whether you're here in the room or at home, uh, good morning. My name is Dominic and grateful to, to be here with you this morning. So I want to share with you a, a headline that caught my attention uh, middle of October. Um, headline said, died Evelyn Mangum, who convinced evangelicals to welcome refugees. And it caught my attention for a number of reasons. At first, honestly, I thought, why would it take an older elderly woman to convince evangelicals to welcome refugees, right? Like, why, why is that even a thing? Like, I see a lot of tension there, but I won't go there for right now. But what caught my attention about this to, for another reason was just that um, Evelyn Mangum is part of the Christian and Missionary Alliance uh, family that we are a part of. And uh, she was a missionary in Vietnam for 20 years. Uh, if you've been a part of our community for a while or you've heard some of the stories, <clears throat> you know that Joel and Lisa are Vietnamese. And Joel's family were refugees coming from Vietnam. Lisa's was as well. But Joel's told his story a number of times. And so I actually, I sent the, the article to Joel and just asked, hey, do you guys, do you guys know em Evelyn Mangum? Are you aware of her? And they said, we don't, we don't know her specifically, but um, we know her children. We know the names of her children that she's left behind a legacy. She died at almost 90, and she left behind a legacy of, of children and grandchildren that have been faithful followers and disciples of Jesus for their whole lives. A beautiful story of, of a life well lived, a life lived of faith, of devotion, of sacrifice, of mission, uh, following Jesus, making him known in the world. And I was struck by that. Um, I'll be honest, as I'm in my 40s now, I think often about what's, what's my legacy going to be? What kind of wake am I leaving now as a leader? And what kind of wake am I going to leave when I pass this from this earth? I don't know about you, but the last two, two and a half years, it's made me think about my mortality. It's made me think about my life, realizing anything could come and happen. We've had stuff in our own family in the last year, from cancer to even my wife's emergency surgery five weeks ago. This caused me to go, whoa, my own mortality. Like, what's, again, what's my legacy going to be? What's it going to look like when the story is written, a headline about myself? What, what's the story going to be? The second thing that caught my attention was when I pulled this up. I don't know if you can see along the side there, but it says top stories. And I'm going to read those top stories, not because I'm trying to out anybody or defame anybody, but it says top stories. The Christian peacemaker who left us a trail of traumas. Uh, pastors aren't all, oh, you, this is a live version. This is a new one. Okay. There was another one that I had sent. But really, it went down this list, and it said, Mark Driscoll saga, boom. Hillsong saga, boom. Robbie Zacharias saga, boom. The list went on and on, and there was four or five um, lists. And even here, this is, again, like I said, they just sent a more recent one. This is showing still these top stories are these, again, stories of some who are living, some who are deceased, but also Christian leaders or organizations or people who started off well but didn't necessarily finish that way. So as we've been reading through the book of Isaiah and going through that, and we'll wrap it up today, as we've been reading through, excuse me, the book of Isaiah, the book of Nehemiah, um, I've just, again, been thinking a lot about how important is the beginning of something, but even more so, how important is the end? And I've been reading through scripture. One of the things I think that's been gripping me or catching my attention is just how, like, much absorbing realism there is in scripture. What I mean by that is that God refuses to present us with a romantic portrait of life in his word. 
things don't always develop and end as we hope. Good beginnings don't always guarantee happy endings. The biblical narratives often present us with frustrated ambitions, disappointing failures, neglected opportunities, broken vows, people with incredible gifts that don't always achieve their potential. Because what God allows us to see in Scripture is that unfortunately, sin often spoils the story. In particular, sin gone unchecked spoils the story. Abraham attempts to deceive. Jacob cheats. Moses loses his temper. David commits adultery. Judas betrays. Peter lies. Right? There's a stark honesty about the Bible that I think makes it pretty compelling and pretty relevant reading to our lives today. And here's the thing. God doesn't just delete or cancel any of those stories. There's accountability for these stories, yes, so they don't go unchecked, but they're also just not deleted and canceled and done away with. God includes them in his holy scripture to speak to us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to warn us, to invite us in our day and our time to actually be privileged enough to inherit these stories of real life, to invite us to consider what's our real life like. What's going on in my own heart, mind, soul, and the world around me? And the intersection of those things. And how am I responding either out of devotion and faith to Christ or allowing the culture and the things around me to twist and pervert and lead and guide as opposed to God and his holy scriptures and his love for me in Christ. And so this morning as we wrap up Nehemiah, we're going to open up our Bible to Nehemiah chapter 13. And again, this series is Nehemiah. We're talking about the unchanging mercy of God. Again, just a quick background before we jump in. Nehemiah, we know and we've talked about, was written uh, originally in the Hebrew Scriptures coupled with the the book of Ezra. So it was Ezra Ezra and Nehemiah together. And they were documenting the fulfillment of God's promise that after the people lived in exile for 70 years, that they would return to Jerusalem, they'd return to Judah, and they would rebuild the city. They would rebuild the temple. They would rebuild the wall. And they would have a chance and an opportunity because of God's unchanging mercy to redevote themselves, recommit themselves, and reestablish life according to God and his ways. And so what we read through in chapters 1 and 2, and I'm just going to give you kind of a running list just to get our minds here together. Chapters 1 and 2, it was the report from Jerusalem of the great trouble and shame that the people were experiencing. And we saw that Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem. He surveys the land And he comes back and he unites the people. He calls them to this mission of rebuilding the wall for the purpose of, again, recentering God in the middle of the people. Chapters 3 through 6, then, it was the process of rebuilding the walls that we looked at. And the difficulties that they faced, the challenges, the opposition against the work, both externally and internally, acknowledging, again, the realities of that. Anytime we seek to live by faith, anytime we seek to unite around Christ and his mission, his purposes, there's going to be opposition. Let's not kid ourselves. They faced it, then we face it now. And so we were reminded of that in chapters 3 three through 6. And then chapters 6 through 10 was the walls actually finally finished. And we saw that the people, they came together and they recentered the voice of God through Scripture. They recentered uh, God's love and they renewed the covenant to him. They, they realized their mistakes. They realized the ways that they had gone astray. And, and because of God's unchanging mercy, again, they, they recovenanted themselves to walk with God and to be his people, to be a city set apart, a city of light, if you will, for all the nations around to see. And then we move on to chapters 11 and 12, and we saw that they, they reestablished the way of God in the community. 
And as they did that, it was both in Jerusalem and it had impact on the villages around. And the people experienced joy. The people experienced freedom. The people experienced new life. They experienced hope. Why? Because it was, this is the fruit of covenant love. This is the fruit of devoted worship, of devoted service. This is the fruit of living and doing things God's way. And you would think that because of what we read about and took place in those latter chapters, 8 through 12 in particular, you think that we'd be reading now opening chapter 13 and, and throwing a party, realizing it all ended well. But again, Scripture, I believe, has a way of just giving us this absorbing realism of what actually happens in real life. And so I want to look at that today as we wrap up chapter 13. In chapter 13, in my Bible, it's titled Nehemiah's Final Reforms. In my mind, I read that and I call it, dang, here we go again. So here we are, Nehemiah chapter 13, 1 to, 1 to 14. I want to read it and we're going we're to talk through it in sections to see how God is speaking to us this morning. He wants to call us this morning to remember his unfailing mercy and the beauty of living life in covenant with him. So Nehemiah chapter 13, 1 through 14 says this. It says, So on that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet your God turned the curse into a blessing. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. So now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, he prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king, and I came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done to Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his own field. So I confronted the officials and I said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and I set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, and the oil into the storehouses, and I appointed a treasurer over the storehouses, Shemaiah, Shelemiah the priest, Zodak the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and their assistant Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for there were considered reliable and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. And so we read here in these first 14 chapters of, excuse, verses of chapter 13 that Nehemiah, after devoting 12 years of his life to help to rebuild, to restore, to call the people back, to establish them, and to set up again this system or culture, this way of life where God is at the center. His word is the ultimate voice proclaimed. The people are contributing and participating in their roles according to their giftings, according to their calling, according to the way God has called them to. Things are established and working well. Nehemiah has to return to, to, um, to Susa. He has to go back because, remember, he was a cupbearer to the king. 
So he gets called back, and we're not told how long he's there, but he gets permission to actually return from Jerusalem. And again, I don't know if he got word like he did in chapter 1, but he goes back after what we're guessing is maybe like a three- to five-year period, and what does he find? He finds that things, after just three or to five years, they're not the way he had left them. And fortunately, again, that the beginning always does not dictate the end. Because there is the reality of this thing called sin. There is this reality of the thing called the flesh. There is this reality of this thing called the world and the, and the culture around us, around the people of God. And the people of God always have a decision to make. Do we continue in faithfulness to God, covenant faithfulness to the covenant God, or do we allow the culture around us to dictate the way that we live? And so Nehemiah finds that despite the fact that thousands of people in Jerusalem and in the surrounding countryside, despite the fact that thousands of them had put their seal on this new covenant, things had drifted quite badly. What I propose to you is that this didn't happen suddenly. What I propose to you is that it didn't happen dramatically, right? But that over time, people started to do things without asking whether God's word had anything to say about the subject at hand. And they just started doing things according to their own wisdom and their own knowledge. Again, or according to the influence of the culture around them. They began to live life for themselves again. They exchanged a, a more permanent, eternal lens through which they were viewing life to put on again a more imminent frame, which we've talked about throughout this study of Nehemiah. What we see here is that unfortunately, the failure to continue in faith and faithfulness started actually with the leadership. It started with the priest, whose name is Eliashib, who we find out here was related to who? Tobiah. Does anybody remember that name? In chapter 3 and chapter 4, when we start, when they're rebuilding the wall, and we hear about these groups of people who are bringing opposition against Nehemiah and against the vision and against the work of the city and the wall and God's people being reestablished. Do you remember whose name shows up in there? There's three guys. Tobiah was one of them. Outspoken adamant physically against Nehemiah and the work being done. And here, after years of faithfulness and then Nehemiah leaving, all of a sudden, Eliashib gets this idea in his mind that somehow it's a smart idea to not only befriend or listen to his, his kin, he, we're told he's, he's related here, but he actually gives this guy a room to sleep in and to live in inside the temple. Again, I would propose to you that this probably was not just uh, Tobiah one day walking up and knocking on the door and saying, hey, Eliashib, I'm here, bro. Like, what's for dinner? Can, can, I, can I sleep here? In, in, can I bunk here? I mean, th this guy was a ruler. He was a governor. He was in power. He had authority in the, in the, in the region. He didn't need a place to sleep. You, you, you tracking with me? But somehow, someway, over time, Eliashib begins to slowly shift his alignment, not to align any longer with God and his word and his instruction and the things set up in the temple, but the forces of Tobiah's leadership around him. The voice of the culture, the power, the longings, the desires. Somehow Eliashib begins to move himself slowly closer and closer and closer to Tobiah so that at some point Tobiah does say, hey, can I get that room? And Eliashib says, yeah, come on in. And Eliashib takes all the offerings he takes all the things that the people have given him in faith that were supposed to be stored in this room and he puts them out. And instead, he brings a bed and he brings a chair 
and he brings a lamp, and he brings this place, and he establishes here in the house of God a home, a residence (laughs) for Tobiah. And we read that Nehemiah comes back and he finds this. And he says he's very angry. He's very angry at this evil. And so what he does is he, again, he reestablishes. He kicks out, it says. He kicks out the furniture. He moves it all out. And he reestablishes so that the people can bring back in their offerings. See, what's, what's the issue here? This is what we're seeing here and what we're going to see as we read chapter 13 is that the temple... The marketplace and the home, all of these places when Nehemiah returns, the temple, the marketplace, the home, none of them were any longer places where God's name was revered and his voice and his values honored. But again, it didn't just happen overnight. It was a slow creep, like it always is, right? It's a slow creep. And so what we see here is that the people spiritually, in terms of their commercial practice, in terms of their domestic ways of life, all of life that was supposed to be aligned with and intended to honor God and allow the people to experience freedom in each of those places, what we see, unfortunately, is that it all goes downhill. But it started with these leaders failing to be faithful, failing to be committed. I want to read for you verses 15 to 22 now and see the impact that this had and how these are connected, what happened in the temple and what happens now on the Sabbath and in the people's fields. It says, in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and they sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing? profaning the Sabbath day. Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares, they lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and I said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I'm, I'm going to have to lay hands on you. And from that time on, they did not on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. See, what we see here is that neglect and defilement in the temple, unfortunately, neglect and defilement in the marketplace. The Sabbath here we're seeing is dishonored, and the market here is being set up right inside of Jerusalem's walls in a place where it ought not to be. Instead of the people being able to come in and bring grain and produce and offerings at appointed days, they're coming to sell things in the market every single day. Instead of coming to worship God in community, in the temple, as a sign and a symbol of their devotion to God and as a testimony to all the other nations around them, instead what we see is that they're coming to Jerusalem to worship the God of mammon, to worship the God of money. Instead of delight in the Sabbath and resting in God, resting in His goodness, resting in the joy 
God's provision for them and the call and the command to actually rest, to not be just human doings, but to be human beings, to not be caught up in the production machine, the hustle and the bustle and the hurry, but to rest and live from a place of rest and refreshment in God. Instead, what we see is that they enslave themselves again and again to the hustle and hurry of the culture around them. If you recall chapter 12, I want to read a couple of things that we saw there in chapter 12. We saw that the centrality of, of holiness in worship led to the importance and the understanding of partnership with the people. We saw that they understood the privilege and the courage of serving one another. We saw a variety of ministries taking place, the grace of humility. We saw that the, the power of living for the people to their chief end. And, and chapter 12 ends with this phrase, and it says, And the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. See, when the people did things God way, God's way, from the stewardship of their resources to attuning their ears to God's word to coming together to worshiping and sacrificing the way that God called them to, their lives and their hearts in that community was filled with joy, as Vicky talked about two weeks ago. And it says that that joy was heard from miles around from afar. What we see here in the verses that we just read is actually the opposite of that. Now in chapter 13, what we see is that there's despondent Levites. There's silenced singers. There's disobedient tradesmen. There's ungodly merchants. There's materialistic nobles. There's spiritually negligent leaders in the community. The spiritually courageous leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah that we've been reading about is replaced by this leadership of Eliashib that is foolish and that is damaging. And the people just go along with it. And what we're told here, when he says that the Tyrians came in and people came from other countries to sell every single day. What we're seeing is that the people lost their faithfulness and they lost the impact of their witness. Instead of living set apart, even in the, excuse me, in the maintaining of the Sabbath, again, a day to show how good God is, how kind God is, how loving, how merciful God is, they went alongside the, just with the culture. See, syncretism has always been an issue for the people of God. Whether it was in, during the Exodus, whether it was during their time in exile, whether it was any time, there's always been a, a time and a place where the people have looked around, even thinking about why they got set up as a kingdom. The people looked around, they said, they have a king, so we want a king. They get to do this, so we want to do this. They have this, so we want to do this. Here again, we see the cultures around them, they worked every single day. They sold every single day. Those people thought that was good for them, not understanding and realizing they were actually living enslaved. And the people of God look here and they go, oh, well, we, shouldn't, we don't need to take a day off. We just, we'll, we'll do everything that everybody else does. They traded actually their freedom for being enslaved again. And we don't hear now of the joy of the people of Israel going afar, but we hear now this message that the gates of the temple are open to buy and sell things every single day. So come on in and be enslaved just like the rest of the world. See, the people had made a covenant. <laughs> they knew who they were. But what Nehemiah finds upon his return is that they'd clearly lost their way. And again, what I'd propose to you is, because this was a three- to five-year thing, is that this probably just didn't happen overnight. A slow and slippery slide for the people of God to begin to, again, turn their backs on God, to shut out God's words and God's voice, to replace God's value with the values of the cultures around them so that they lost again the faithfulness of their lives and the effectiveness of their witness. They become just like everybody else and they'd lost the impact that God had called them to have 
in the world. And unfortunately, it doesn't just stop at the temple or just stop at the marketplace. But I'm going to read the next few verses with you and see how it actually impacted the home. It says in verse 23, In those days I saw that the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, of Ammon, of Moab, again, the very cultures and communities that had oppressed them and tried to stop them from reestablishing the wall and the city and, and God's word being center again. Verse 24, And half of their children, they spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And so I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair. That's crazy, and we'll talk about it in a minute. And I made them take oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, on account of sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no man like him. He, and he was beloved by God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, who was the son-in-law of Sanballat, that's the other guy who was greatly adamant, the Horonite. Therefore I chased him out away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant and the priesthood of the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and the Evites, each, Levites, each in his own work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for my good. Unfortunately, this third section of the scripture, what it shows us again that the sin went from the temple, it went into the marketplace, and then it landed in the homes. And we see that we've seen in each phase that Nehemiah has reacted with anger against the sin. But here we see it's, it's the most crazy. <laughs> the pulling of hair and the beating of them and all that. But why? Why does he do that? The first couple of verses we read, it, it tells us that the, the, the men had started to marry these foreign women of Ashdod, of Ammon, Amob. Again, this is not... We're not supposed to read this and, and set up some type of hierarchy of ethnicity and of people and all that. That's, that's not what this is. Please don't go there. This, is, this was specific covenant, specific instruction to people in certain times for a specific reason. And it was in a time when all the nations around them were worshiping idols. They were worshiping foreign gods, basically worshiping the devil. And so God told them clearly, do not intermarry with these other people groups because if you do, it will not go well for you. Again, this is not hierarchy, again, of ethnicity, racism, any of that. This is for devotion. <laughs> this is for protection. This is for safety. This is for God's heart being displayed and known to his people and the people's heart being surrendered to God and protected so that they can experience freedom and the goodness of God. But things went sideways in the temple. Things went sideways in the marketplace. And now over three to five years in the homes, what happened was the men just started saying, well, I'm going to go marry these other people. And he's very clear to tell us what happens is that inside the home now is the language of these foreign countries that worship foreign gods, and the people don't even know the language of Judah. So what Nehemiah is painting here is this picture of this slow decline of the passing down of the faith from generation to generation. Instead of the language of the Israelites in the stories, it's now the language of the Ashdodites in the stories. The culture in the home is centered around God and His Word and His faithfulness and His mercies. The stories in the home now are the stories of the surrounding culture. Their gods doing things their way. Do you see the, do you see, do you see the issue there? It's the slow 
slippery decline of a culture and of a nation turning its back on God and then landing in a place that they never were supposed to be in. They're living in sync with the world again and they've lost their faithfulness and they've lost the impact of their witness. And so, yeah, I loses his stuff. <laughs> well, here's what I'd invite you to remember and consider. The man named Jesus who came and after a certain number of years in his ministry, he comes upon the temple. And inside the temple, what does he find? He finds the table money changers and all of the things being sold. And I'd invite you to think about and consider his reason. It's one of the only stories told in all four of the Gospels. And what we're told, if you'll put up the picture, is that Jesus took the tables of those moneylenders and he threw them. He took the chairs and he threw them. I don't know if you can see it depicted here, but I looked at probably 50 different pictures. Each one of them had this picture of Jesus with this whip of nine lashes in his hand raised against the people. You'd go, a picture, I, that's, I, I, that's not the Jesus that I know or that I want to worship. Or I mean, I don't think actually the picture is too far from what Nehemiah did here. Why? The actual point of Nehemiah chapter 13, church, is to remind us and to give us a warning about spiritual apathy and carelessness. And to remind us and tell us about how jealous of a God we serve. A God that, whose mercies never do fail. A God whose grace is unending. A God whose love is powerful so much so for a life like my own and like each of yours. But a God who is jealous after the hearts of the world, of the humanity that he's created. A God who is holy and perfect and good and just and kind and righteous. A God that is worthy of praise, who displayed that through sending his son into the world to die on the cross, to rise again, to continue to give of himself to us out of loving faithfulness and mercy and kindness. And a God who asks simply in return or desires in return to be in relationship with us. Why? For our benefit, because that is actual freedom. <laughs> and for his glory, meaning that we live in faithfulness, the world sees, oh, it actually is good to know God. It actually is good news that a child was born in Bethlehem to a virgin child that walked on this earth and lived a sinless life, was blasphemed and persecuted and, and abused, had his back turned on him by his closest friends, and yet went to a cross and died. That is good news. Why? Because there's freedom that is found in there. There's love that is found in there. I think the reason why Jesus was so upset, if you can just keep that picture up, I think the reason why Jesus was so upset, the reason why Nehemiah was so upset, that this all was happening in the temple, that this was happening among the people of God, was this, it's for the sake of freedom. See, you and I are all created to worship, are we not? You and I are all always worshiping something all the time, every day. There's not a single person on this earth that is not worshiping at some point all the time. Our eyes are fixed onto something. Our mind is entranced and engaged in something. Our emotions follow that and our actions follow that. And our lives are moving in a trajectory based upon the things that we worship. And Jesus was so upset here. Nehemiah was so upset here. Again, the picture painted here for us is a warning against spiritual apathy and carelessness being 
careless about what we worship and fill our eyes to fix on. Because what Jesus found when he walked in there was that they had set up all of this stuff to sell it. Where? In the courts where the Gentiles were, gonna have, were supposed to have a chance to come and worship. Where the surrounding nations were supposed to have a chance to come and hear the story of God. Where else are they going to hear it? This was the place where they were supposed to be able to come and hear the testimony of the story of God, His love, His faithfulness, His goodness. They were supposed to have a chance and opportunity to turn and repent and live in under the mercy and the grace and the love and the goodness of God. And the Israelites in Jesus' time had set up camp there to sell stuff, again, losing the effectiveness of their life and of their witness. And that made Jesus really mad. Why? Again, because we're all worshiping something. And everything that we worship will enslave us other than worshiping Jesus. And Jesus wants our freedom. Jesus wants the freedom of every single person in this world. And so he got mad in his day and his time because the Gentiles around were losing their opportunity to experience freedom. Because what was being peddled in front of them was just continued slavery by a people that should have known better. I think the lesson for us in all of this, you guys, is on one hand, I think we look at this and we need to remember and go, there's, there's no one perfectly righteous in Scripture. Nehemiah is not that. Nobody else is that other than God alone and His Son, Jesus Christ. You hear me? And again, God doesn't cancel them. <laughs> he doesn't just neglect them. He doesn't just throw them out and say, don't. No, no, again, it's there for our encouragement. At the same time, it's not just held unaccountable. There's accountability in God's righteousness and justice. But I think the invitation for us that I would remind us and call us to as we finish up this journey in Nehemiah and we head into the season of Advent, a month <laughs> that our culture tries to rob and steal and enforce and get us to think about and focus on all kinds of other things, the reminder would be, church, people of God, we need to return again and again and again unchanged mercies of God. You and I, we always talk about that we exist to be an authentic community of Christ fully known so that others may come to fully know Him. And the only way that we can do that is to allow ourselves to remember and center the voice of God, the truth of His Word, the reality of the Gospel, and the freedom that that gives us to be honest about our lives, where our hearts, where our minds are, where our focus is, where our worship is, and to walk in loving accountability with one another in that. Again, what I propose to you is this was a very slow, slippery progress over three to five years that got them to this place. It wasn't just overnight. And if you find yourself here this morning in a place and in a state where after these two years or after three years, after five years, after a week, after whatever it is, you go, I wish I just was not in this place. Let me remind you that this whole book, again, is about the unchanging mercy of God. And you have a chance, you have an opportunity to turn, to repent, to experience the mercy of God. If you find yourself in a place where I say, I feel enslaved by something, you have a chance for freedom because of Christ. If we as a community are in a place where we're not living according to the witness that we're called to, we, we, we need those that, like Nehemiah, come and step up and say, hey, this isn't right. I think one of the things probably that made Nehemiah mad the most, if, if I'm projecting myself as a leader onto him, is that he came back and he goes, wait, this is, we have three to five. Why did nobody say anything? Like, why, why did none of you step up to Tobiah? 
Why did none of you step up to Eliashib? You know, do you know what I'm saying? Like, this isn't just happening privately. Like, this is happening publicly. Like, we walk in and the market is like this. Like, Nehemiah is probably still going, am I the only one that has clear eyes to see this? Like, one of the key things that, again, the book of Nehemiah shows us is that he was a cupbearer to a king. He, he was not a priest. He was not a Levite. He was not a person of great renown within the story of Israel up until this point. But we know about him and we know about him. Why? Because he was a common person that had devotion to God who actually had the willingness and the ability and the voice to call out the stuff that was not right within the people of God. Yes, that is me giving you all permission to hold me accountable. Yes, that is me giving you all permission to hold one another accountable. Yes, that is me giving us as a church that say again, we want to live authentically as a community together to make Christ known in this world to say, let's do that church. Let's embrace the, the tender mercies of God. Let's live in the reality of the grace of God. Let's remember the freedom that we have only through the love of God revealed to us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's remember the lives that we have the capacity to live through the empowerment and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And let's lovingly call one another to live in covenant faithfulness to God for our own benefit and good, yes, so that we have a faithful and impactful witness in the world, yes, so that ultimately God is glorified and people go, oh my God, he is glorious and merciful and kind and just and have no other choice but to fall in love and to worship him too. And so here's your Nehemiah challenge this week. In light of all that we've read and in light of, yes, again, heading into the, the Advent season. We're told Jesus' ministry, he came in and his first words is that he said, the kingdom of God is at hand, the time is here, repent and believe the good news. We're about to celebrate a season where Jesus is entering into the world. And so I want to invite you this, this week as part of your Nehemiah challenge to repent, to think about what, what have you allowed to creep into your life that has taken the place of your first love of God? I encourage you to be honest about that. Again, under the mercy of God, the love of God, the grace of God, knowing that as you are honest about it, he doesn't shame you, he doesn't shun you, he doesn't push you away, but he welcomes you in to experience his love. What have you allowed to slowly creep into your heart and to your life to replace the love of God? That if you're honest, has caused you to be in this place where you go, oh crap, I'm enslaved and I actually don't like it. You have hope in Christ. You have hope through the gift of repentance. And secondly, believe. What's one thing you can do? Empowered by grace, right? Not bootstrapping my will, me white knuckling, no, no. Empowered by grace in response to grace. What's one thing you can do to recenter your life on Jesus in the coming weeks? What's one practice, one thing? During community life, you're going to hear about some of the spaces and the things that we've set up for, for Advent, and I'm hoping and praying that even some of those things will be opportunities for people to, to engage in this, but Missio, as we wrap up Nehemiah, yeah, I pray that we would remember the unchanging, unfailing mercy of God, that we would realize that where we are today in, in a year of prosperity, a year of hardship, the both end, being here, it doesn't necessarily always mean the end is going to be beautiful nor perfect or what we expect or want it to be, unless we remember the unfailing mercy of God submit and surrender ourselves to that and allow ourselves every day, day by day, to live and breathe in that mercy, in that grace. Walk faithfully day by day 
Because I want my headline, and I want your headline, I want each of our headlines to be that like that of, of Evelyn Mengo. I want the story to be that when I'm 90, and each of you are 90, that it's the story that was centered there big on the screen. There's generations that come after you that lived faithfully for Christ. That there's communities impacted because of our lives. That there's injustice that was undone because of our lives. That there was hate and oppression and things turned and cast out because of our lives. As opposed to that side column that showed all kinds of ways in which people forgot to live devoted and surrendered to the faithfulness of God. I pray that as we begin to take home and establish it in this place, build a temple and a wall, if you will, that we would remember to be a people devoted to God, living surrendered to Him, allowing Him to live and move in and through us so that Christ becomes known and He alone is worshipped and receives glory. Amen?